Genesis chapter number 1, verse number 1. Winston Churchill delivered these famous words in a 1942 speech at London's mansion house. It was just after the British army had routed Rommel's forces at El Alamein, driving the German forces out of Egypt and ultimately out of Africa. The battle marked a turning point in the war. After a series of defeats from Dunkirk to France to Singapore, Churchill could finally tell the House of Commons that we have a new experience. We have victory, a remarkable and definite victory. Generals Alexander and Montgomery turned back Rommel's forces at El Alamein. They won in what Churchill called the Battle of Egypt. Churchill had said, I've never promised anything but blood, tears, toil, and sweat. Now, however, the bright gleam has caught the helmets of our soldiers and warmed and cheered all of our hearts. Today, as we conclude this long study in the book of Genesis, like Churchill, I would say, now this is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. You see, everything in the Bible is inseparably bound up in this first book by the name of Genesis. That's because Genesis gives us the origin and initial explanation of all major biblical doctrines. Obviously, not everything that God took 66 whole books to tell us about. Uh, 15 centuries in the writing of these 66 books. Well, not everything's contained in those books. But there is a progress of doctrine throughout the Bible which begins in the book of Genesis. From the first book to the last, we learn more about God, ourselves, sin, redemption. With each successive book, God reveals Himself to us, reveals us to ourselves, and reveals how we can have a relationship with the Creator. All the major doctrines of the Bible are like rivers that become deeper and broader as they flow from the initial watershed of this book that we've been in called Genesis. We're going to examine those major Christian doctrines this morning and their connection with this book of Genesis. If you'll remember, right from the start, matter of fact, Madison's been repeating this to me to let me know that she finally got it, that Genesis can be broke down into two sections, four great events and four great men. Inside those four great events, we've got creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Those four great men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, tell us so much about who God is, who we are. But the theme throughout this whole entire book is God laying out the framework for redemption. That framework, that theme that will ultimately uh, see His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, sit on the throne of the universe glorified by those he has redeemed. And I hope, church, that that's you today. And today I want to briefly summarize these two sections in Genesis as we close this wonderful, wonderful book of beginnings. Four great events. Remember chapters 1 through chapters 11. The creation in chapters 1 and 2. The fall in chapters 3 through 5. The flood in chapters 6 through 10 the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. And in these first 11 chapters of Genesis, if we're careful, if we look, if we study, if we paid attention, 
we can see all the major biblical Christian doctrines that begin to flow out of this first section of these four great events. These four great events reveal the nature of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1, the Bible records these words, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The nature of God, He is the supreme Creator, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. God, in the beginning, confronted nothingness and spoke everything that's into existence out of that nothingness by His Word. He is the supreme Creator of everything. Listen, don't listen to what the world tells you. Don't listen to this nonsense from these postmodern neo-Marxists today that want to convince you that there's nothing in the world that means anything. There's a God in heaven who spoke the universe into existence and He is the supreme creator. But not only that, He's the sovereign King. If you turn over to the book of Genesis chapter 2, verse number 15, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Every one of the tree of the garden thou may eat freely, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. From the day that thou shalt eat thereof, there shalt thou shalt surely die. Not only is he the creator, but he's the sovereign king. God gets to make the, uh, the rules in this universe, not us. He spoke everything to existence. He created everything. He sustains everything. And because of that, he is the one that runs it all, and he is the sovereign king. He establishes marriage right there in these first couple of chapters in the book of Genesis. God made man, God made woman and he put that woman and he put that man together and he said this will be my covenant, this will be my institution that we will fill the earth as you procreate together. So I say this, I've made people mad going through the book of Genesis. Matter of fact, there's people that hate me because of this doctrine right here. But that's all right. God made man and God made woman and he said the two will be joined together and the two shall become one flesh. And anytime, any way that man tries to say it's different, it goes against God, the created uh, king's sovereign order, and it is sin. One man, one woman, for life, and if you add it and do it any other way, it's sin and it's an abomination before God. Amen. He's the king, not us. As the creator of all things, God has the absolute right to rule over all things. He exercises his authority in the world, demonstrating his sovereignty. This is seen in these first two chapters of the book of Genesis. God's the creator and God's the king. And as king, he gets to make all the rules. But it's also seen in God's choice and his call in the direction of those people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It reveals the nature of God. He is the righteous judge in Genesis chapter 3. You know the story. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of the tree of every tree of the garden? God reveals himself as the sovereign, the righteous judge. He comes, the serpent, to, to Eve and Twist God's word, and that's what the devil's still doing today. He's never changed his tactics. She listens to the devil. Adam then listens, and God, as the righteous judge, comes down and says, you've done this thing, you've went against my word, and therefore you shall surely die. 
Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, died instantly spiritually and died progressively in the flesh. A person that's born in this world today without Christ is dead spiritually and is dying in the flesh. And without Christ, the two will come together and both equal death. God can do that. Why? Because he is the righteous judge. He ruled and he reigned and he told Adam and Eve, this is what's going to happen because you've sinned. Well, we see that over there in Genesis chapter 6, don't we? With Noah. God says there's wickedness in the world and I'm going to wipe it out. Why can he do that? How can he do that? Because he's the creator. He's sovereign. He's king and he is the judge. But not only that, he's the merciful savior. Amen. The Bible says that Noah in Genesis chapter 6 found grace in the sight of the Lord. Don't you listen to these people that tell you God's mean in the Old Testament and nice in the New Testament. He's full of grace and mercy in the Old Testament just like he is in the New. If I'd have been God and people would have turned on me like they did, I'd have wiped it all out and been done with it. But no, Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. The doctrine of the grace of God is revealed right there in this book of beginnings. He called out a man from among the people, a righteous man who preached for 120 years and said, God's told me how to be saved through the chaos that's coming and if you'll listen to me, you can be saved too. Well, nobody listened even though Noah preached, but Noah and his family were saved and in that God began to fill the earth again after showing grace to Noah, the doctrine of the grace of God. The nature of God, he's the righteous judge, he's the merciful Savior, He's the Most High God, Elohim in chapter 1, the Covenant God, Lord in chapter 2. But not only does it reveal the nature of God, it reveals the nature of man. Right there, we're created in the image of God, Genesis chapter number 1. Created in God's image, we're unique uh, in His image, we're a unique reflection of God. We're utterly reliant upon God. We are ultimately responsible to God, the nature of man. Not only were we created in the image of God, but we was created for the purpose of God. To enjoy a relationship with Him. Everyone gathered here this morning, God wants a personal relationship with you. And just as He did with Noah, He's using me this morning to call out to you and say, He wants a relationship with you and all you've got to do is answer that call. Created in the image of God. Created for the purpose of God. Not only to enjoy relationship with God, but to rule over all creation. You know, right there in the garden, God told Adam, He told Noah again over there in Genesis chapter 6 that we'd have dominion over all of the earth. For good or for bad. He gave us the responsibility to work, to take care of His creation. But not only that, to reproduce His glory to the ends of the earth. Now, number one way he did that was through marriage. He set that up right there in Genesis 1 and 2. Since Adam, God said you're to get married and you're to fill the earth. To reproduce his glory in the earth. But all of this is just building up for the ultimate plan that we're to re reproduce his glory in Christ. Paul said Timothy was his son in the faith. Let me ask you something this morning. How many sons and how many daughters do you have in the faith? Well, if you say, well, I don't really have any. I'm kind of shy and I'm too scared to tell people how they can come into the family of God. 
Stop that this morning. Get busy reproducing and filling the earth with people that are in the family of God. How do you do that? Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. That's what this whole book is about, the nature of God and the nature of man. But there's a problem. Since Adam, all men are born in the likeness of Adam, not God. You see, in Genesis 5, verse number 3, the Bible says that Adam bore a son in the likeness of Adam. Something needed to be done about that. We still bear the image of God, but it's defiled by our sin. We're born in Adam's image. The nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of creation. It's fashioned by the Word of God in Genesis chapter 1. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. It was fashioned by the Word of God. It's sustained by the power of God. It's evidence of the goodness of God. Six days shalt thou work, and on the seventh day, rest. If you're working your hands to the bone to try to get ahead this morning, stop. God says, rest in me. And if we'll seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all that we need will be added to us. The nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of Satan. It reveals right there in Genesis chapter 3 that God's the creator, but Satan is just a creature. Genesis 3, chapter number 1. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Satan is a creation of God and God is sovereign but Satan is subordinate and if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with Satan listen I want to tell you something get on God's team and ask him for help because Satan is subordinate to the almighty creator God and in Jesus name declare him defeated why because he already is you just got to claim that reality Satan is subordinate to God and he has no power over the children of God. And if you're struggling this morning, don't even wait till I'm done. Come to this altar and claim the name of Jesus on whatever you're struggling with. And he must answer and he must turn from the word of God and the power of the Son of God this morning. Genesis 3, chapter number 15. Listen to what the Bible says. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel from the seed of the woman. God's already declaring right there in Genesis 3 when man had no more than sin and being ashamed that he had a plan to solve it all. And one day there's a Savior coming and Satan was going to bruise his heel. Yes, he was going to hurt him. For three days he'd be in the ground, but he would get up from the grave and conquer and crush the head of Satan. Right there in the book of Genesis, God begins to lay all of that out. The nature of Satan. God is sovereign. Satan's subordinate. Satan can speak and is very intelligent. I mean, he tricked Adam and Eve, did he not? And if you're not careful today and if you don't rely and depend upon the word of God, he'll trick you too and trick me. We're not smarter than he is. It's only as we depend on God can we overcome Satan and the power of Jesus Christ. He can speak and he's very intelligent. He's a malicious liar, a deceiver, an evil murderer. Tells us right there in Genesis chapter number 3 in John 8, 44, Jesus referred to Satan as both a liar and a murderer from the beginning. But I got good news for you this morning, church. For all of them years, Satan committed his murders and told his lies and he did it and we deserved every one of them. 
he wasn't guilty of murder because he was killing people condemned to die already. But there's a man come on the scene over there about a couple thousand years later named Jesus Christ and he was innocent, he was holy, he was perfect in all his ways and when Satan took part in the murder of Christ for the first time he killed an innocent man and brought the judgment of God upon him and that's good news today because Satan is under the judgment of God this morning and through the power of Jesus Christ we don't have to be the nature of Satan. It tells us the nature of sin. The core of the sin, we've rejected God's word. And the question we ask ourselves this morning, church, is whose voice will we listen to? God had said, don't eat of that fruit, Adam. Everything you got, everything you need is right here. Just simply trust me and Satan coming in. And he whispered his lies to Adam and Adam listened to Satan and didn't listen to God. You know what Satan's doing this morning, right here, right now, as you sit in that pew this morning? He's whispering his lies. Don't you listen to him. Don't you pay attention to what that crazy man up there saying. Don't you get up out of your seat and embarrass yourself in front of all these people and go to that altar and get what you need from God. Hey, it won't last. He's whispering those lies. He's a deceiver. We've got a choice this morning. Are we going to reject God's word? That's the core of sin. Not only that, we've spurned God's authority. Not only are we list, whose voice will we listen to, but who's going to rule our hearts? Genesis chapter 3, right there in the beginning. They denied God's character. Who will we trust and obey? Satan was really saying to Adam and Eve, God's holding out on you. He's not giving you his best. That's why he's withheld this one thing from you. You know what he's saying to us this morning? God's holding out on you. If you'll follow me, I'll show you what life can really be like. But let me tell you something this morning. The Bible says, sure, there's sin or there's pleasure in sin for a season. But when sin is finished, it brings forth death. And Adam and Eve understood and knew that, the nature of sin. The conflict that was brought about because of that sin there was a conflict between man and God. God thrust them out of the garden and that relationship that was perfect in the beginning was broken. Of course, you know that a broken relationship with God brings forth death. There was guilt. There was shame. Adam and Eve saw themselves naked for the first time. They were vulnerable. What does that mean they began to see themselves as being naked? Well, it we see that as them, God saying they didn't have clothes on and they realized that, but there's much more to it than that. For the first time, they realized that they were vulnerable, that they could be hurt. And when a person realizes that they're vulnerable and they can be hurt, there's a realization that immediately comes into their mind. If I'm vulnerable and I can be hurt, then that means you can be hurt. And if I know how I can be hurt, that means I know then how you can be hurt. And we know the very next story in the Bible was about two brothers named Cain and Abel. Amen. And they played that story out very, very well. It reveals to us the nature of sin, our relationships, the conflict between man and God, but the conflict between man and man. Cain and Abel, two brothers born. Genesis chapter number 4. One sacrifice is accepted, one's not. The one that's not, listen, he wasn't trying to hurt Abel when he killed him. He was trying to hurt God. He became angry that God said to him, Hey, why is you, why is you countenance uh, looking down there, uh, Cain? And, and why are you so upset because things ain't going so well for you? 
Cain, it's your fault that this has happened. And if you'd simply look at me and trust me and start doing it my way, things would be better for you. But Cain, all of the misery, all of the pain, all of the suffering that you're going through in life, look to yourself, Cain. And it made him angry, and he became angry at God. And what happened? He killed his brother, who was the ideal. Abel did it right. And Cain killed him. Why? Because that relationship was broken. Men trusted Satan more than God. They listened to him and didn't listen to God. And it brought enmity between them and God and them and each other. It brought conflict between the man and the woman. You know the story. God comes. He said, hey, hey, Adam, what's going on? You know, Adam was hiding in the garden. They're like you're going to hide from God. Come on now. I remember one time I got, I'm, I'm not going to start chasing rabbits. I got to tell this. So I got, my mama got, was going to give me a whipping one time when I was little. And I got to running from her and I was scared. And she, you know how mama say, don't you run from me. Uh, and she went and cut her a switch and she's going to chase me and give me a whipping. And I went running for and run from her and ran in the house and slammed the door into the closet. I was going to hide from her and the doorknob come off. And immediately I started pounding on the door. Help, help, call the fire department. Get me out of here. It's dark in there. I wasn't going to hide from mama. She knew exactly where I was. Adam wasn't going to hide from God because God knew exactly where he was too. And I want to say something this morning. Be sure your sin will find you out. You ain't hard hiding from God this morning either. He knows exactly where each of us are this morning and he can find us and he comes looking for us. And all of that's laid out right there in the book of Genesis. There was a relationship broken, the conflict between man and God, man and man, man and woman. Well, when God asked him, said, Adam, what's going on? Why are you hiding? God, uh, Adam said to God, it's your fault you gave this woman to me and she's the one that gave me the fruit. He's trying to blame her. And God had told him not to eat the fruit. And there was that conflict. And I'm going to tell you something, it's been there ever since. You see it today. I mean, look at this modern feminist movement. They're rising up and making men out to be the most evil things that's ever existed and men making women out. That conflict's always going to be there. But why? Because we live in sinful flesh and until Jesus comes and returns everything back to the way it's supposed to be, it's going to be there because it caused a conflict between God and man, man and man, man and the woman. It caused a conflict between man and creation. I mean, you stop and think about it. There in the garden, all Adam had to do was go pick the fruit and eat it and tend the garden. And now we've got to do it by the sweat of our brow. That's what God said. He cursed the earth with thorns and thistles and all of this stuff. And we've got to work. And creation's been trying to destroy man ever since. Conflict brought about by sin, the consequences of that sin. Well, immediate spiritual death, Adam died. Everybody's been born since then, dead in their trespasses and sins. Eventual physical death, wrath poured out on sin in Genesis 6. But this book also tells us and talks about the need for redemption. You see, Genesis 1 through 11 gives us glimpses of grace throughout the whole book. And you know what i got to say about that this morning, church? Amen, amen, and amen. In the midst of all the conflict, in the midst of all the struggle, we get glimpses of grace. In Genesis chapter number 3, the promise of Christ that he's going to crush the head of Satan someday. Right there in Genesis 3, the provision of a sacrifice. When Adam and Eve were naked in the garden, God begins to introduce that idea of a sacrifice. He, 
killed an animal and gave Adam and Eve a covering to protect them. And I'm going to tell you, that led to and eventually came to that God killed Himself and sacrificed Himself to Himself on the cross of Calvary to cover the sin of the world. And that idea of sacrifice, the covering of sin, the covering of shame, and the covering of guilt was introduced right there in Genesis chapter number 3. The promise of Christ, the need for redemption, the provision of a sacrifice, the presence of a covenant. In Genesis chapter number 6, you know the story of Noah. I spent about probably three months going over that great story of Noah. The presence of a covenant. God said, listen, never again will I destroy the earth with a flood. But Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you and all those that come after you and I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky as a sign of that covenant. That until I come again and I destroy the earth, that there's going to be seed time and harvest, winter and summer, cold and hot. And and, and I'll maintain, as sin-cursed as this creation is, I'll maintain that thing until Jesus come again. So you get all these radical people today that talk about us destroying the earth and we got to do all this stuff to save the earth. Listen, saving the earth ain't in our hands to begin with. This earth is in the power of God's hands. And he said there's going to be seed time and harvest, cold and hot, summer and winter, until he comes again. He's going to preserve this thing until he destroys it, not us. We flatter ourselves to think we can destroy what God created. Amen. You turn over there to Genesis chapter number uh, uh, 11 and it talks about the Tower of Babel. That's exactly what that story is about. That man became so arrogant in his own imagination and trusted his own intellect uh, more than the Creator. And he was going to build some kind of structure that would reach to heaven and no longer need God. Well, I'm going to tell you what, John Milton, you know the poem he wrote in 1667, Paradise Lost. Listen to what he said about that. The rational mind that generates a production and then worships it as if it is absolute immediately occupies a place that is akin to hell. That's what they did at the Tower of Babel. They said, hey, we'd be like God. And we think that's not happening today. Mm-mm, it's happening all over the world today. We're trusting in structures that we build, institutions that we build, more than the power of God. Well, eventually that'll lead to nothing but confusion. We saw that in the Tower of Babel. The provision of a sacrifice, the presence of a covenant in Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 9, the preaching of deliverance. Over there in 2 Peter chapter 2, speaking of Noah, back there in the book of Genesis, it says he's a preacher of righteousness. God reaches out and calls on those he loves to be saved. Genesis 1.11 leaves us hope. Not only does it give us a glimpse of grace, but it gives us hope to hold on to. That one day, ultimately, church, listen, smile. Smile. You can smile. Why? Because Satan will be defeated one day. Right there in Genesis chapter 3, that promise is made. But not only that, that sin will be destroyed. I struggle with sin every day of my life, and you do too. I get up every morning and say, God, it's only by your power will I not fall today. But one day sin will be destroyed and we'll no longer have that struggle again. Right there in the book of Genesis chapter 3. God's creation will be restored in Genesis chapter 9. He tells us about that. God's people will be rescued because God seeks the guilty. He covers the shameful. He protects the fearful. And God's name will be praised. Turn to Genesis chapter number 12. 
Oh, listen, we've made it through those four great events. Creation. The fall. The flood and the Tower of Babel. But then God begins to introduce us because there's a provision for redemption made. See, he brought Noah through the flood, but that wasn't enough. Man needed a Savior. With all of these doctrines already established, God's covenant relationship with his people is already in place. Eleven chapters into Genesis, this covenant is established between God and those who by faith trust his promised redemption and restoration. But now the stage is set for Abraham to come on the scene. He's going to enter. And God's going to call to himself a special people through whom the Savior will come. Genesis chapter number 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Four great men beginning with Abraham. It's here that you see the transcendental God. It's above and over anything. Get himself right down there in the particulars of what's going on in the world. And he calls one man who is going to form one family that in that family the Savior of the world had come and that's been God's plan all along. When Adam sinned in the garden, it didn't surprise God. Plenty of mistakes, wrong choices are made along the way. We know that, we've studied that. We've looked at the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But the point is God continually, continually delivers them through His grace and kindness. God's covenant with Abraham where He promises that in Him all the nations of the world will be blessed. What did He mean when He said that? He meant me and He meant you sitting here this morning. That through Abraham they'd come a time, they'd come a people who would call on the name of the Lord and be saved. There would come a time and there'd be a people who would confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead. And through that confession and through that belief, they would be saved, brought into the family of God, redeemed for all eternity. And that started right there with this man called Abraham when God said, Abraham, get up and get out and go start a life. And I'm going to show you things that's going to blow your mind. And I'm going to tell you something this morning, church. If we'd be like Abraham and get up and get out, we'd see that God would show us things that would blow our mind. But as long as we sit on a church pew every Sunday and forget about it till we come back the next week, we're never going to see the power of God work in our life and the life of others. We saw that. God promises to bless rebellious through humanity, through this family of Abraham, despite their constant failures and folly. Well, we see that happen. Abraham has a son. God, who had made this idea of sacrifice uh, way back in Genesis 3, begins to develop that more with Abraham and his son Isaac. There's a lesson to be learned there. If you want to be all that God wants you to be, perhaps you're going to have to sacrifice something this morning. And perhaps that thing you need to sacrifice is that thing that you love the most. And when we sacrifice that thing that we love the most to God, who we ought to love the most, then God can use us in ways that, won't, that we can't even imagine or couldn't even imagine before that. Well, then we look at his son Isaac in chapters 21 through 35. What does Isaac tell me? Well, number one, God begins to introduce the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. 
You know how God uh, used Abraham and his servant went before Isaac to find that beautiful wife, Rebecca, a picture that's drawn for us of the Holy Spirit who goes before us, who teaches us, who guides us, who draws us to the Savior. And he went to Rebecca and he told her about a, a son that, man, I mean, he described him in such a way that she couldn't help but not resist and go with him. And that's what the Holy Spirit's doing this morning. He's here this morning and he's describing Jesus in you. He's interpreting this old hillbilly up here to speak peace and to speak beauty and to speak redemption in your heart. He's pointing you to the Lord Jesus Christ just as uh, that servant of Abraham did Rebekah to Isaac. And that doctrine's introduced right there in the book of Genesis. But not only that, this man named Isaac shows us that we don't have to be a somebody to be a somebody in the kingdom of God. Isaac was surrounded by one great man on one end and another great man on the other end. And he's crunched right there in the middle. And, and we know Jacob become this great man. Abraham become this great man. Well, who's little old Isaac? Well, he was a cog in the wheel for the Savior to come, and God used him in a mighty way, and he'll use you too if you'll simply trust him. I'll never be a Billy Graham, but God's got people for me out there to lead to Christ. Maybe not millions. It might just be one, but that one's important to God, and he can use you if we'll be obedient like Isaac was this morning. And then he moves on to this Jacob fella. We went through and we talked about Jacob. Oh, my goodness, the redemption and the power and this doctrine of sanctification that God takes what's dirty, Jacob the deceiver, and turns that person that's dirty into something holy. Jacob became Israel, the deceiver into the prince of God. And you know what this morning the Bible says that you were born a sinner, but God wants to turn you into a saint. And if you'll trust Christ, he'll do that just like he worked through the life of Jacob. You get saved today, is everything going to be perfect in your life? No way I'm not telling you that. But there's a process that'll start that one of these days you'll look and act and be like Jesus. And we see that laid out right there in the life of Jacob. It took him 20, 30 years to begin to get it right. But God never gave up on him. He never gave up on God. And God worked it all out in the end. And finally God said, you're no longer Jacob. You'll be known as Israel from now and evermore. And God's got a new name for you this morning if you'll simply pick it up and put it on and wear it. He wants to make you into the person He wants you to be. That doctrine of salvation and sanctification right there in the book of Genesis. Well, Shane, I did it because we're now to Joseph. Wow. Joseph, the greatest picture in the Old Testament of the Savior who would come. God begins to lay that out right there in the book of Genesis. Chapter number 37, when we're introduced to this 17-year-old boy named Joseph. Listen, church, if you don't see Jesus in Joseph, you're blind. If you're not drawn to this man named Joseph and drawn to the story of Joseph and through that drawn to this Savior named Jesus, there's something wrong this morning. Joseph. He was the son that was favored. He was a servant who did all that his father told him to do. Well, you know what happened because of that? He got cast down into prison. All his friends, all his family turned against him. Sounds a lot like Jesus to me. But Joseph never gave up. He stayed obedient to the call of God in his life. And God raised up this man that was down there in prison to be the supreme leader only behind Pharaoh in this land of Egypt. We see that right there in Genesis chapter number 41. A 
picture of Jesus as son, servant, and supreme. He was the prime minister of the most powerful nation on earth then. But I want to tell you something. It also shows Joseph as Savior. We know what happened there. His people were starving. They deserved judgment. They had sold him into slavery. They had turned their backs on him. And instead of giving them judgment, I'm going to tell you, if I'd have been Joseph and I'd have been on the throne, them brothers better look out. But no, Joseph was like Christ. And instead of giving them judgment, he gave them grace and mercy and provided for them and fed them and called them to be his people. And Joseph sent those brothers to get the rest of the family. And what happened? The father rejoiced. That sounds like Jesus to me right there in the book of Genesis. Joseph gave them all that they needed. Everything in the land of Egypt is at your disposal, he said. Well, God says something like this. We are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Everything in the universe is at our disposal. And we ought to claim it this morning. We ought to get up off our seats this morning and rejoice that God makes all the universe ours this morning in Christ Jesus. Amen, amen. Glory, hallelujah. Praise His name. He's King of the universe. He sits on the throne this morning and He's calling His family to be with Him. And what was the message Joseph sent to the family? I ain't dead, I'm alive. Jesus. I reign supreme and I'm at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus. I've made ample provision for you. Everything has been done so that you can be saved. Jesus, make the decision to come live with me. And that's what Jesus is calling you to do this morning. All the major Christian doctrines have their source directly or indirectly in this book of Genesis. Preachers, missionaries, theologians, teachers who fail to see this have lost the foundation for what they teach. Conversely, those who do see this have the God-given proper basis for all their Christian witness, preaching, counseling, teaching, and faith. Genesis points to a lot of things. But church, I want to understand, I want you to understand something this morning. Ultimately, Genesis points to Christ who will come. The promised one. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Redeemer, the Savior. My God and my King, sovereign and holy while gracious and loving. Come to Him today. Praise Him today. Genesis, Genesis is the story of us. But most of all, it's the story of Him. King Jesus, who reigns forevermore. Come. I don't know what you need today. Hey, listen, most of the time I don't even know what I need. But Jesus does. Is there a person in here that doesn't need something? Nope, not a one. And Jesus invites you this morning to come. 
Are you going to listen to him? Or are you going to listen to that old serpent that says, Don't go. Don't go. Don't go. Just like it was with Adam and Eve, the choice is yours. But the invitation and the offer are open. That's Terry Place. You stand. If you need to be saved today, don't you leave this place. Don't you leave this place until you've come and received Christ as Savior. He invites you this morning to come and be saved. I want to say one more time. Jim, we did it! <laughs> Genesis chapter 50. You come this morning. Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. <laughs> That's how he's working in this world. We sometimes mean it for evil, but God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow them also he did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. God wants to take you where you are and make you look and act and be like Jesus this morning. All you got to do is come and receive that gift. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this wonderful book that you've given us the privilege to go through over these last four years. And God, I pray now we're done. We're going to move into Matthew, the generations of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, Father, we would not forget what we started way back in Genesis that points us toward the Jesus that's revealed in the Gospel of Matthew. So God, we want your help because we need it and we trust that you'll give it in Jesus' name. Amen.